one bad deal may take you 10 good deals yeah, to, to actually recover, right? And then some bad deals may, I mean, I don't have, you know, I, I position size so that nothing can really sink me. Uh, no one specific thing can sink me, but sometimes people go all in and they do have something that does sink them. And I would just say, just take the approach. Just remember, you'd rather shoot 99 innocent people to get rid of that one murder. You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Azria Show. I'm your host, Marcus Maloney, and we have our co-host and executive director, Mike Del Pre. Hello, hello. Welcome. And to thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike, man. So today we're going to be talking with a very special guest. His name is Ethan Gao, and we're going to be talking about um, quite a bit of topics on today. So I just want you to kind of be prepared, have an open-ended mind coming into this podcast on today, because I guarantee you we're probably going to touch on some topics that you're not familiar with. So if you want to be a better investor, it's always to be an educated and a wise investor. So Ethan Gao on today, he's going to share his story, his backstory, and what he's currently doing in the real estate space and in financing. So Ethan, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. Great, great. So you guys, Ethan has worked in the commercial space, multifamily, rentals, have a portfolio of rentals, done deals as far as passive investing with multifamily. So Ethan, kind of give us your backstory, man, because it seems like you've done quite a bit in the real estate industry. Give us that backstory, you know, your origin story, how you got started. Sure. So I went to college when I was 16 years old. I met my wife the first day of class. We've been together for 23 years. We've got five little kids. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. To slow down, slow down. So <laughs> you went to college at 16? Yes. Amazing. Okay. That's not normal, Ethan. It's not. And then I graduated when I was 19 and I went to law school. I think I was the youngest guy in my uh, law school class at Columbia. Graduated from there in 2006 into a great economy and basically uh, worked as a mergers and acquisitions attorney on Wall Street for a while. Uh, we made, I made a very, very solid um, salary and bonus. And my wife was in investment banking and she worked at a private equity firm before she got a MBA from Harvard. So the first several million dollars that we saved up was from our jobs. We okay. were just regular Wall Street W-2 people working 60 to 100 hours a week at very, very challenging uh, jobs. Not only is the job itself challenging, the personalities you work with are also pretty annoying to deal with. Once we had our first kid, my wife no longer wanted to work outside the home. So we decided to move to Houston, Texas. We got a big house in the suburbs and then we proceeded to have more kids. At that point, I still worked at a large law firm, making a very, very strong W-2. And basically, mm -hmm. because I'd already saved several million dollars, I just didn't really feel any sort of need or want 
to stay in that career path. It was a very difficult career path to advance in. And it was also a very difficult career path to stay in because it's just a lot of work. So then I started Googling things like, how can I not have to work at this shitty job? <laughs> okay. And it basically led me down two different things. One was franchising. All the franchises I researched looked like it was, it would require me to buy a shitty job. So I was like, no, thanks. And then I found real estate investing. And so I would consume tons of podcasts and articles about real estate investing and essentially decided that for somebody like myself that already had saved quite a lot of money and knew uh, the law as an attorney, a good fit for me would be a hard money lender. So I okay. started lending millions of dollars to people fixing and flipping houses here in Houston. Uh, so, so let me ask you this, Ethan, because... Normally what happens is when people are making a handsome salary, their expenses are elevated as well. So why did you use the strategy of, okay, I'm making a lot of money. Let me keep my expenses low and let me save the majority of, of my money because we play a game that's called cash flow, And we normally under see that when you have a high W2 paying job, you have a high standard of living, which is a higher level of expenses. How did you find that balance to where you didn't have those high level of expenses? Yeah, I'm going to give you a terrible answer. That's not going to be applicable to most people. Okay. So I grew up as a poor immigrant and we're Chinese. So it's super easy for me to save money. Like right now, my expenses are super low, even though my net worth is significantly higher than it was before. And okay. I have five kids. Uh, it is not difficult for me to save money at all. And then on top of that, I've met my wife so early in my life that I literally don't have hobbies. So Got I don't really have to spend money on it. So, so are you saying your wife is your hobby? Ethan? It's more my kids at this point. I have five kids. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so when people are like, hey, can you come out for a hunting trip? No. Hey, can you come out for, um, you know, drinks? No. Hey, can you come out to blah, blah, blah? No, not interested. Very easy to save money when you reject all of those things. True. So were, were you, did you cold turkey, like quit investment banking and go straight to hard money? Or was it like a, a, a slow transition? No. So I'm super conservative. So I literally replaced my job income and then I quit. Okay. So I was, okay. so I was, I had to actually, my job was so busy sometimes. You know, when you send wires, a lot of banks do a phone call. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, confirm your wiring instructions or confirm where you're sending the money to. Um, so I used one of those banks. And I noticed that I was so busy on back-to-back -back conference calls at my real job that I actually wouldn't be able to get the callback for the wire. Oh, wow. And then I'd call back and then they said, and then that, like, that doesn't work. They say, okay, cool. We're going to put you in line. And then we'll just call you back later at some completely random time. And I was like, wow, I'm actually slowing down people's deals and yeah, potentially busting the their deals just because my job is too busy. So what I had to do was I just started wiring in my money to the title company like three days earlier. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. I didn't want to mess up any of my guys' deals just because I was so busy at work. And were, were these traditional like single family fix and flips or what yes. kind of did you start? Okay. Sorry. Single family fix and flips. I think the smallest deal I did was like 75 K. And uh, so this is all in the Houston area. 
largest okay. deal I did was like, I think well, a million bucks. Like Marcus, if you heard what he, I caught what he said, man, you gradually replaced your yep. income, but you were already able to sell, save millions of dollars. You guys were high income earners and you through hard money lending with single family homes, you're able to max or uh, match your current living. Is that right? I was able to replace my job income, not my net worth. Well, yes, your job. That, that's, that's impressive. How, how long did that take? Uh, it was, it did not take long. I mean, I had millions of dollars saved up. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not that hard yeah. if you're making 20% return on your millions of dollars. Man, that's amazing. So yeah. what, what lessons, or can you, what, what lessons did you take from wall street to the single family realm? Like what, what did, was there any correlation there? Was it any of the, your knowledge from your current job help you in hard money lending? Absolutely not. If anything, it probably did the opposite. When you're on Wall Street and everybody went to Cornell like I did, or everybody went to Columbia Law School like I did, or if everybody went to Harvard Business School like my wife did, you end up in groupthink. And mm. because you're dealing with efficient markets in the public markets, you literally can't believe that you could lend somebody money at 18% at a 70 loan to value and have a safe investment. So once I started reading bigger pockets and started doing it myself, I would actually go to a couple of my friends uh, who are also lawyers and I would just tell them about what I was doing. And it was just mostly disbelief because generally, um, if you invest in the stock market, you're going to make like a 10%, eight, whatever, 12% annualized return with massive volatility and massive mm -hmm. drawdowns. Like last year in 2022, if you invested your money at the beginning of the year into the S&P 500 fund, and then you sold it at the end of the year in 2022, you would have lost 19 points. You lost. Yep. You lost. However, in 2023, even with all these interest rate hikes, the S&P 500 is up 10%. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to hold, you're going to get that, you know, 10-ish annualized return and you know, reinvest the dividends, you'll get a little bit better. But with hard money loans, you could basically make around 20% with none of that volatility. Wow. So, and it's backed by real estate. And it's backed by a foreign asset. And in Texas, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not sure in Arizona, but in Texas, it's super easy to foreclose on a property and take it back. Mm -hmm. You need like a, you need 21 days, 21 to, you know, 62 days max to take a property back. So I was just faced with disbelief from most of my colleagues because they're like, oh, well, we can only make like 10% on equity risk. You're telling us you can make 20% on debt, secured debt? That doesn't even make sense. And I said, okay, cool, guys. I'm out of here. <laughs> All right. I'll, yeah, well, I'll we, show we, you. We, we don't have a meeting of the minds here. <laughs> I think I'm out. I don't need to hang out with you guys anymore. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, Ethan. Uh, in reference to hard money lending, how did you gain the experience on underwriting, what to look for, what not to look for? I know your wife was an investment baker and, you know, you have, you know, the Cornell background, but did you do all of your study just via bigger pockets or was there anything else that you used, you know, to leverage for your education when it comes to underwriting? No. So I hate paying for stuff as we discussed earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. So I did not join any masterminds. I didn't pay for any boot camps. You know, I, I might've gone to the free version or looked online, but investment banking doesn't help you at all. Going to Cornell doesn't help you at all in real estate. I mean, it's a fancy yep. degree. You can impress somebody maybe, but it, it doesn't really do anything. Uh, all you have to do in single family fix and flip is just look at comps. Okay. And look at our rehab budget. 
It's not brains. It's not brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's like, hey, most houses over here sell for about this much. And then, hey, does this look like how much it generally costs to fix this thing up? And is this how long it generally takes? Uh, it, it's not a particularly hard business. And that's why I've seen just in the past eight years that I've been actively involved, I've just seen all kinds of new people come into hard money lending. And it's essentially a commodity product. And I'm not super interested in competing in a commodity product, especially because I'm I'm not really willing to be the cheapest or mm -hmm. on the cheaper side. So it doesn't really make sense for me to compete there. So I've kind of transitioned into doing more special situations loans, which we can discuss, uh, yep. you know, in the next segment, if you want. Okay. So, so real quick, one last question ahead, on this, then if we're going to segue. Did you just use your personal funds or did you ever think to tap in to so everyone that was like, wow, how, how do you do that? They didn't understand what you're doing. Did you try to pull money together, maybe do a PPM or anything like that to lend more money or did you just your own personal investments? So it started with my personal investments, personal cash, and then I stole some stock market positions I had. Then I had large life insurance policies that I started borrowing from and against. I'm a huge fan of life insurance. I love it so much that I became a licensed life insurance agent seven years ago. So I sell life insurance to um, okay. investors uh, and, and, and just other people. Kind of yeah, we're not supposed to really talk about it that way, but yes, yeah. it's basically the same. You've okay. heard of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I told my parents and I told my in-laws, I'm an only child, so is my wife. I told my parents and my in-laws, they were very supportive. They started giving me their money. And then I had a, just a small group of friends, mostly lawyers I'd worked with. Some of the ones who were like, okay, we don't really understand why you can achieve this, but you don't seem like a moron to us. And we know you and you obviously quit your job. So we're assumed you're not, you know, faking, like you don't have any income <laughs> yeah. and you're about to lose your house or something stupid. Right. So I had a small number of friends invest like a hundred K 200 K or something like that. But no, we never had to do a PPM or anything like that. It was, it was too small and it was more like joint ventures or partnerships with okay. just a very small handful of friends. I will okay. tell you this. So I became friendly with a local hard money lender here in town. We're okay. still friendly now. We don't do a ton of stuff together, but I've known him for almost seven, eight years. And he actually borrowed money from me once. He was one of my borrowers, which that was just like a super confusing situation for me where I'm like, hey, bro, you're a professional lender. Why are you borrowing, borrowing. money from me? <laughs> and then he sent me his personal financial statement. And I'm like, hey, dude, you're richer than me. Why are you borrowing money from me? So okay. we went um, around at least two or three times where he had to explain to me why it made sense. <laughs> and I was, and I, I just had to be comfortable. It wasn't some sort of stupid fraud where I was about to get ripped off. And, and it, it ultimately made sense. He just had better yielding investments for him okay. to make with his own cash. So for him, it was more of an arbitrage play where he could borrow from me at like 12% and then he can go make 64 on wow. his own money. So, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I remember talking to him one day. So he, he would be pretty nice. We'd check in every three to, you know, six months. He'd always take me out to lunch. He'd always graciously offer to pay. And then mm -hmm. one day, I think I just told him, I'm like, hey, man, I'm like out of money. I don't have any money to lend, but I have a lot of good deals. And he was like, Ethan, you've been lending your own money this whole time. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about, mofo? Like, Whose money are you lending? Right. And he's right. like, oh, well, I raised the money from investors and then I have bank credit lines. So I literally make people a million dollar loan and I run right into my bank and they lend me 900K against the loan I just made. 
And I was just like, holy shit, I never heard of this even with my Wall Street experience. I said, okay, cool, bro. Uh, cool story, bro. Can you please introduce me to your bankers? Right. Show me how to do it. Yeah. So, so you sent me a few bankers and I set it up and I did the same thing. So I could make somebody a hundred K loan, walk right into the bank, go give them all the paperwork. And then they'd give me a loan for 90,000 back. And that's how almost all local uh, hard money lending shops work. They're all basically highly leveraged uh, institutions that are supported by local bank credit lines. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That, that brings a lot to the table there. You could do nine right? to one. So with 3 million bucks, you can make $30 million loans because you're leveraged nine right. to one. With nine to one. Okay. And that's kind of, that's kind of where, and this is kind of off topic, but like with SVP, SVB, that that's kind of where that got into trouble because it was nine to one. So as a lender, let me ask you this as a lender, Ethan, not being versed in the real estate industry, where did you go to find investors to lend money to, money to? I just How went to all the, yeah, I went to a ton of local meetups and okay. then I just get referrals from other people. And then I don't know if it's like this in Phoenix or wherever you guys are based, mm -hmm. but there's a custodian, an IRA custodian company here where a lot of the networking is actually people that lend money out of their IRAs. Okay. So I specifically went to a lot of those meetups and my goal there was to not find borrowers, but to find lenders so that I could get their advice and listen to how they've been doing it. So I met one of my best friends. His name is Scott. He's significantly older than me. He's been, he, he used to actually be a loan officer at a bank and a mortgage company. And then he's been a private lender for like 20 years. So then he and I started partnering together where we would just do our loans 50-50 he would actually end up doing most of the real estate due diligence. And then I do the legal paperwork. Gotcha. Great tip. Yeah. Going to yeah. the IRA, meeting people that have IRAs, there's meetups or yeah, your local custodians for lenders. Um, I walked into that meeting and I was like, I want to find the oldest looking guy who looks the richest and mm -hmm. I want to <laughs> talk to him. So my friend Scott looks a little bit like Montgomery Burns from the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, this guy looks like the oldest, richest guy here. I need to talk to him. And, and, one, and one of the things that I'm hearing, Ethan, no matter how much education you have, right? It's still, let me go out and find the resources that I need so I can be educated in this arena so I can perform at my highest level in this arena. So that's one of the things that we always tell uh, our members is no matter how educated you are, there's always education that you need out there in order for you to be successful in whatever endeavor that you're in. So you just proved that point right here in this conversation. Absolutely. You have to be, you have to take advice from other people and you have to learn from other people's mistakes. Otherwise, you know, there, there's only a certain amount that you can learn by reading it or listening to it to actually do it as a slightly different thing. So if I can jump into like, cause we mentioned about on um, the whole like, so current, are you currently, or have you been growing um, your whole life policy? How's that look now over the years, now that you're getting better at, you're successful at hard money lending? Yeah, I mean, I, I have 16 policies. Mm -hmm. Most of them are whole life. Some of them are long-term care policies. And one is a variable universal life policy where it's, I, I've invested in an S&P 500 uh, index. It's not an index universal life. So it, so, mm -hmm. you know, last year, I lost 19.5 because I just invested in S&P 500. 
okay. there's also no, there's, so there's no floor on a variable universal life policy with the, like the one that I have, but I also don't have a cap. So this year I'm up whatever 12% in the S&P 500. And then if next year, whatever president, a better, a more favorable president mm-hmm. comes in or some jazz and the stock market goes way up, then it's a hundred percent return that I get a hundred percent. So there's no cap and there's no floor. Like another thing about this and another aspect of the whole life you can touch on with 16 policies, I was talking to someone else about this and he didn't even, he owns real estate through his whole, whole life using, leveraging that to buy property. Um, but he didn't even care. He's like, when I die, I don't even care how many properties I have because the death benefits are so high yep. that my family's going to be sh- straight with or without property. How, how do you look at that? Is, are you not, is that your situation as well with 16 policies? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because life insurance is just unfortunately like a semi-efficient market at best. Um, Very few people really understand it. And then the incentive structures really, it causes a lot of people to buy policies that they have no business buying. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it also unfortunately drives away a lot of people that absolutely need the policies, but they just, they were sold, you know, they were pitched the wrong way or they read about it the wrong way and they don't truly understand it. But literally almost everything that I do in my day-to-day life in terms of making money or making good investments, it almost becomes a rounding error versus what my kids and grandkids will inherit from my policies and my wife's policies when I'm dead. Wow. So they will inherit nine figures from our policies when we, assuming we die when we're 85, mm-hmm. assuming I don't get hit by a bus tomorrow. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, they're only going <laughs> to they- get like. They're yeah, only they're still okay. They're only, they're only <laughs> going to get 14, guys. But, it, but, it, but it, ain't a, it ain't 100. Right. Well, So uh, it's almost like anything that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is just a rounding error versus what I guarantee that my kids and grandkids will inherit. Well, I can definitely speak to using whole life policy in order to buy real estate. I just recently done one of my recent deals and pull the money from my whole life policy. So I can definitely second that, Ethan, to where it's a great avenue and a great resource. And if you guys are not looking into it, you really need to because it can help help streamline your funding, your lending, and everything like that. And then you make money on top of your money. So, man, that's a great, great topic that you guys just touched on. Yeah, no, I I would love to sell everybody a life insurance policy or more. Shit, I'll sell everybody 16. <laughs> right. And can, can't you buy policies on other people? Yeah, so some of my policies are on business partners, and I've got policies on all five of my kids. Mm-hmm. And I've got long-term care policies on my mom and my mother-in-law. I was going to get them on my father and father-in-law, but medically they were both rejected, unfortunately. Okay. One has yep. diabetes and one has a, had a stroke. They were just essentially excluded from coverage. And that's different from the whole life or is it whole life policies? So the long-term care, they're also whole life. Okay. It doesn't make a difference. It's just, it's the insured. So that's who dies, right? Just like Mm -hmm. if you have 14 different rental properties, you can have 14 different insurance policies. Right. And it's it's just because one house burns down doesn't mean you get to collect on the other 13. You only collect on the one that's relevant. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. Cool. So, so what are you doing now then? Let's go. You said we're in a segue. So explain to us what you're doing now and how it works. Yeah. So about three years ago, I had a friend slash like a, more like a high acquaintance because I don't really hang out with him that much, even though I like him a lot. 
Uh, I had a friend of mine, essentially, uh, he was a multifamily syndicator. He does student housing in Texas. He literally took me out to lunch or a breakfast or brunch or something like that. And he said, hey, dude, I know you really like life insurance policies and it sounds like you're really liquid. Have you ever thought about signing on investors' loans as a key principal or a loan guarantor? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Jordan, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he explained it to me and he said, hey, in commercial and multifamily, the lead sponsorship team, when they're borrowing like $10 million from a lender, they need to show that their net worth is above the loan amount. Yep. That's just the policy. And then, by the way, they, they know that most of you real estate guys will just make up random amounts of uh, net worth on your properties or overinflate <laughs> what they're worth. Mm -hmm. So the way that they really test you is they say, show me 10% liquid. Right. So show me the money. Show me a million dollars. So if you're borrowing 10 million, show me 10% of 10 million, which is 1 million. Show me that liquid somewhere. Stocks, bonds, cash. They always prefer cash. Life insurance policy, cash value. Like, show me the money. And mm -hmm. he was like, with your liquidity and net worth, you could just go and sign on people's deals and then get brought into the partnership team. And you could take a, a position, get a general partnership slot on those deals. Yep. And then I went home and I thought about it and I was like, this is definitely what I wanted to do. So okay. I was like, I want to sign every single loan that exists. Well, is there any, what's the risk there? Like if you're just, if you don't trend if they're not good operators or what do yeah. you look into for that? Yeah. So I view my job as an exclusionary process. So I already know 80% of people that come to me need to be rejected. They're either not smart enough, not experienced enough, their personality is not a good fit for mine, or um, they're just morons. I mean, I don't, I don't really, okay. I don't want to show them. I mean, you guys know, you guys meet a lot of people. After about four minutes, you can be like, that guy's definitely a moron. Let's avoid him. <laughs> like, or you're like, yep. hey, that guy's real smart. Maybe let's avoid him because he might be too smart and then rip me off. Got and then there's everybody in between that's like, hey, with the right deal in the right place, they could probably be a pretty good operator. So that's what I've done. Uh, I have signed on multiple deals across the country. I'm a general partner on over 2,000 units across the country. I've also signed on, uh, I'm in the process of signing on self-storage. I've signed on um, industrial deals. I've also signed on an operating company. Most, it's that operating company drills water wells. So I had to sign on the equipment loans. So water well drillers look like 18 wheelers with like arms that come down. Punch mm -hmm. holes into the ground. So I signed on two loans to buy water well drillers. Okay. So, so that is a core business of mine is being a loan guarantor. So in the risk, what's the risk there? The like, risk is these, some, these are all non-recourse loans, I'm assuming, correct? Some of them are full recourse. Some of them are non-recourse. So okay. the multifamily ones tend to be more non-recourse. Mm -hmm. The specialty ones like self-storage or water well drilling or companies tend to be recourse. Generally, I will consider recourse if it's somebody that I know fairly well. Okay. So like the water well drilling guy, I've been his lawyer for four years and I've lent him millions of dollars before. So um, I, I know exactly how he operates and we're okay. totally fine. And then I'll also consider it if it's local to me here in Houston, in the Houston area. Because That's I feel like if somebody screws it up, I actually have teams that I could just parachute in and we just take it over. Right, right. And that's why I was asking about the non-recourse versus recourse, because you say you just want to sign on loans. You definitely don't want to sign on recourse loans and you're not familiar with the operator or the business partner. 
Correct. I mean, you just, so for most people, this is not a good deal. For most people who aren't going to do this as a core portion of their business, what they've really done is just taken an asymmetric bet that can burn down their house. So it, it's not really a great deal for them. But for somebody like me that's doing it professionally, mm -hmm. I think it can work as a business. Great. Wow. So many ways to make money. It is. <laughs> and, and you're definitely proven that. And it's all passive. Well, the majority of it is all passive. So you don't have to worry about coming in and swinging a hammer or drilling the drill, drilling the holes or anything like that. Your whole thing is let me evaluate the deal. Let me evaluate the operator. And if those things align with me and my goals and my family goals, then we can definitely do it. So what is one of the things, what is one of the projects that you were like, man, you know what? I want to do it, but I just really don't know if I should do it. And how did you come to the conclusion to jump forward or to pull back? That's a really good question. I probably look at 10 deals a week on a fairly serious basis. About half of them get excluded right out of the gate because just the numbers don't make sense. Mm -hmm. But I'll probably look at five. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you there's certain deals that I wish that I didn't do. Okay. And those are more meaningful versus like I'd rather uh, turn down a deal just in case it doesn't work versus be on a deal and then it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Like the ones that you don't want to be in, they drag you down so much more in terms of the time wasted and the mm -hmm. amount of energy you have to spend. I'll make this joke for you history buffs out there. But um, back in the day in China, the communists and the nationalists were fighting right after World War II. And so basically the nationalists, they, they hated communists so much that the head guy basically said, like, I don't even give a shit. I'll shoot a hundred people. If there's one communist in there, that's a good deal. Wow. <laughs> but I am willing to reject a hundred deals in case there's that one bad one in there that I might've accepted. Right. So I okay. would much rather just reject anything that's on the border, borderline where I don't have a good feeling about, I just mm -hmm. reject it. I'm, I'm too old at this point to bother taking that kind of risk. Yeah. And that goes back to your conservative approach also with investing is I don't need a speculative investment because actually I'm secure financially right now to where I don't need a speculative investment. So I can do my due diligence and follow, you know, and, and, do my due diligence and follow everything that's in the deal. And if there's any red flags, nope, I'm not, I'm out because I don't have to do a deal. Yep. And I would encourage everybody to take that approach. Even if you're not in that financial situation, I would just still recommend that you take that approach because a one bad deal may take you 10 good deals Yeah, to, to recover. actually recover. Right. And then some bad deals may, I mean, I don't have, you know, I, I position size so that nothing can really sink me. Uh, no mm -hmm. one specific thing can sink me, but sometimes people go all in and they do have something that does sink them. And I would just say, just take the approach. Just remember, you'd rather shoot 99 innocent people to get rid of that one murder. Wow. Okay. Got so tell us, Ethan, what's next on the horizon for you? So what I've been doing recently, so kind of as a dovetail to our discussion earlier. So a lot of times when I meet people and I say, hey, I can be your loan guarantor, your key principal, your deal sponsor. A lot of times the deal is already in motion and it's about to close. Mm -hmm. So in those situations, what I've discovered is a super special situation that exists. 
and it, it's a very narrow set of, of factors that make me interested in potentially lending. And it's the following. So let's use, I actually did a deal in Phoenix. This is my only deal in Arizona that's completed to date. This was a deal last July, last year, second half of the year, rates started going up. People started getting antsy. It was a little bit harder to raise money, et cetera, et cetera. So I met a really good sponsor. I like her a lot. She had a situation where she had to close by a certain date. She could not get an extension. The seller was one of her prior business partners that had a 1031 exchange. And if you guys have been around the 1031 exchange, you know that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lack of flexibility Mm -hmm. in terms of moving dates. So she was like, man, I'm missing 1.5 million to complete my fundraising. I need to borrow 1.5 million. And I said, okay, well, I'm here to be your loan sponsor or your key, key principal. Right. Like, what are you talking Like, This is not a fit. And she said, okay, but cool. But you just said you hold a lot of liquidity. Why don't you just borrow some of that money out of your life insurance policies? Lend me 1.5 million. I'll close. And then I'll raise 1.5 million in the next few months and pay you back. So then uh, you can charge me interest. You can take a portion of the general partnership of this deal. You're going to save my deal. Uh, otherwise, it's going to crash and I'm going to lose all my earnest money. That prior business partner is going to be really mad that I messed up his 1031. They own a bunch of stuff in Phoenix already, so they know the brokers. They don't want a bad reputation there. Yep. So I thought about it and I was like, okay, this sounds great. I'll do it. So I lent her $1.5 She closed her deal and she paid me back in six months. Wow. She made me partial payments along the way. Again, it was a little bit hard to raise money last year and this year. So yeah. this is 23. So it took a little bit longer than she she would like. So I ended up uh, charging her interest on my loan. Plus I got a general partnership stake in the deal. So I have done that two dozen times at this point. So that is the specific thing that I'm looking for. I am looking for somebody that is short on their fundraising and they have no real option. Like in her case, trying to find 15 people with a hundred K to give it to her in a week, very tough, way easier to pay me a premium deal with one guy with 1.5 and who can do his own paperwork because he's already a corporate lawyer. Yep. There's no, there's no frictional costs or frictional things that slow down the deal when you deal with me. I like it. So what kind of advice to like maybe to real estate investors that are not in your position, right? With, with liquid funds or access to funds and the amount of experience you have, because whether it's coming to analyzing deals and knowing, I think you said 50% or 80% of them are just not good right off the top or 80% of people you're going to work with. I like these concepts, like that could be frustrating, right? Especially if you're looking to get your first couple of deals done, or you're trying to build wealth or quit your job. So like what, anything about patience or any, any uh, advice around that to help people out? And- Absolutely. Yeah. And I faced this early in my career. So early in my career where I didn't know that many people and I wasn't that experienced. Anytime anybody showed me any deal, I would just try to find reasons to do it. Every deal looked great because I had only done a couple of deals, right. right? Then as I started evaluating more deals and done a ton, I actually take the opposite approach, which is kind of what you guys are saying before, which is like, I could literally just not pick up my phone for like the next few days. Like I could just not look at the next 30 deals, not do any of them. And I'll just be fine. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for reasons to immediately reject people. Gotcha. So there's certain heuristics and there's certain tells that people exhibit where I'm like, I already know I won't get along with this guy. So I'm not even interested. 
mm-hmm. right? Or this type of deal in this type of market. Class C, not something I'm very interested in. Class C, out of state, I'm even less interested. Right. <laughs> not only was <laughs> I not interested in Class C, but now it's in some random state I've never been to. I know even less. So this is mm-hmm. people that are horrible at checking their emails or showing, showing up to meetings on time. I already know this is going to be a bad fit, right? Yeah. Like I'm on my phone, like I respond to everybody all the time. I have very few unread messages. Somebody shows me their phone. They've got 5,000 unread texts and 5,000 unread um, emails. I already know it's an automatic no. There's you no way I'm going to get along with somebody like that. Not to cut you off, Ethan, but I thought that was just me. I thought that was one of my tales because when I go to do partnerships and do deals and things like that, I look at the response rate on how quickly do they return messages? How do they Especially now I understand if it's just some random person sending you an email or a text message, but if it's somebody you're in the midst of doing a deal with, or you're thinking about partnering with, and like you said, there's red all over their phone, then it's like, you know what? I don't know how on top of it or how trying to look for the right word astute they are about their business because of these tales. So, man, I didn't know that. I thought it was just me, but you use that as a vetting system. As well. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you something. <laughs> Hopefully people weren't turned off about shooting a hundred people, but I'll give you a better, <laughs> I'll give you a better heuristic to remember me by. Okay. So this is what I tell people. I'm just like, look, I'm only attracted to one type of woman, 40 year old Chinese woman with five kids. So if you don't have that, don't even bother showing it to me. <laughs> like if you got 39 year old blonde woman with no kids, I don't want to see that. Like yeah. I, this is how specific I am about the people that I want to work with and the deals I want to be involved in. So it's not, I'm not trying to be rude about it. I'm just like, this is what I'm looking for. So if you can't, if you just have 5,000 unread emails, like you're, you're not a 40 year old Chinese woman with five kids. Mm -hmm. That's great. You're just not it. And I'm not whatever you want. So if you don't want a 39 year old Chinese guy with five kids, then I'm not the right guy for you either. Right. <laughs> like maybe I have too few unread emails. You're like, oh my God, that guy checks all his emails. I can't work with the guy like <laughs> yeah. checks all their emails. Who checks all their emails and <laughs> returns their phone calls? Who, how dare they? That's funny. That's what we call here at Esri. We always uh, encourage our members to create their own investor identity. Once you know yep. what you want, who you are, what you're looking for, it, it makes the business a lot easier. So kind of wrapping up here, I think, yeah, we're pretty over 40 minutes or so. Yeah. Good, great conversation. So with all your experience and knowledge, we're, Give us some of your crystal ball predictions. Where do you think we're at? Where do you think? I know national, local, it's all different a little bit in general. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, rates have gone up. And I think everybody just is defeated by the fact that rates are going up. But it just means that they're going to fall later. You just don't know exactly when. I think the last study that I read that looked like it had the right data showed that after they pause hikes, the median time it takes them to cut rates is like 12 months. Okay. What, what's a cut? What's what's an average look like? It's gonna be. It's usually series of cuts, right? It, it's okay. it's it's right. usually. It's not like it, it's rare that like during COVID when they just cut rates immediately to zero. Mm-hmm. It's usually like a stair step up and a stair step down. People that haven't been around this, I I basically lived through two market cycles as a thirty nine year old. So right. the first cycle was in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I was twenty two, twenty three. That was when I had heard the term 201K and I experienced it. So my 401K literally went Mm, down 50%. Cut in half. Yeah. (laughs) But then in 2009, my 201K became a 401K again because it doubles. Yeah. 
So I experienced that and I was like, well, shit, this seems really weird. So literally you're telling me if I just time these two time, if I just time this and that, well, I would have made a ton of money. And if I time this and that very poorly, I'd be poor. Wow. That's a lot of pressure, mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. I mean, just within two years, right? So if you had timed one and the other really well, you would have been rich. And if you timed them very poorly, you would have been poor. Yeah. And so I think we're going to just face that again. We're not going to know exactly when they're going to cut rates, but I've already told all my business partners, the moment they cut interest rates, I want all of my stuff for sale. Yeah. I'll put I'm my five kids up for, I'll put my five kids up for sale. Everything's for sale. Yeah. Cause it's going to be a premium because everybody's yeah. going to come out and they're going to want to buy. So everything that's is going to be a premium. That's when all the buyers are going to come back and pay stupid prices again. Yep. Yep. So, so right. if you can survive, if you can just mm -hmm. survive from now until then, you'll be okay. Yep. That's key information right there, guys. Listening. I mean, Ethan just gave you golden information from a Cornell investment banker that worked on Wall Street from, for numerous years. Naturally, everybody's looking at the interest rates going up saying, nope, I'm pulling back. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything but you want to kind of go against the grain. You should still be out looking for deals, trying to sift through deals to see where you can position your money now because 24 months, that's kind of what I'm looking at. 24 months, you're going to be able to sell everything at a premium. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ethan. I, I, I don't think you're wrong, man. Now it might be 25 months. It might be 23 months. It might be 13 months. I think yep. if you can just survive, if there's no gun to your head that forces you to sell right now, uh, I think you should just not sell. This mm -hmm. is one of the worst times to be trying to sell something. Yep, absolutely. Are you buy? Would you buy? Would you recommend buying? Can at the yeah, can at the, the right deal. Yeah, if you can get the right deal at the right price and with the right loans. So if you get a loan that's too expensive or that's too that comes with like a heavy defeasance. So where if you uh, in several years if they start cutting rates, you actually can't refinance because you owe a big ass penalty. I would avoid those type of loans. I would take the right type of loans where they can't increase the cost on you and where you don't have a prepayment penalty so you can refinance it into a cheaper loan once they do cut rates. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Because everyone loves those DSCR loans, but they do have those prepayments. They have prepayments and mm -hmm. they, have the, they have a step down on the prepayment penalties. Prepayment penalties. Absolutely. Well, Ethan, man, this was great information. If we want to reach out to you, is there a way that we can reach out to you or follow you or see some of the information that you put out in the atmosphere? How can we contact you? Yeah, absolutely. If you just find me on LinkedIn, you just search Ethan Gal Houston or Ethan Gal Cornell or Ethan Gal Columbia or something, I should be the first result. I respond to all my LinkedIn messages. I also, my preferred method of communication is email. So my okay. best email is Ethan, E-T-H-A-N, and then at galfamilyoffice.com. So G-A-O, my last name, and then familyoffice.com. And you guys know he will read your emails, so. <laughs> I will. Now, I mean, generally, even if you ask me what's my favorite color, red or blue, I'll respond. But if you got like a totally nonsensical question, then right. I might just delete it. If you, if you ask yeah. me some weird question, then I probably won't respond. But if you ask me anything remotely legitimate, uh, if I haven't responded within 24 hours, you probably need to call the police because some because my kids are about to collect $12 million. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things we always say, members, if you want to reach out to any of our guests, please be respectful of their time because they are active investors. So they're looking at deals just like you're looking at deals. 
So please be respectful of all of our guest time as well. So Ethan, thank you so much, man. It was a wealth of information that you provided for us. And I just like it because it was just a general conversation flow to where you provided insights that we, we didn't even need to ask the questions in order to get the information from you. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, you're, you're over in Phoenix, man. Make sure to look you up. Yep. Yep. There you go. We'll do. All right, guys, you know exactly what to do. Get out there and take massive action. Use this information that Ethan provided for you in order to be a better investor. So this is the Azria Show signing off on this week's episode. You all get out there and make sure you enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to the Azria Show with your hosts, Marcus Maloney and Mike Delpreet. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information valuable, head over to azria.org and learn more about our community.